I really enjoy running. And by running, I mean jogging for health benefits somewhat. I usually run a few days a week, three, sometimes four miles when I do. And some of you say, I could tell. I knew he was a runner when he walked in. But I started running because I really like to eat, just so you know. And I know some of you are going to tell me, well, that's not, that doesn't work, cardio and all that. I don't want to hear it. I really enjoy running. I really enjoy eating. And if the two don't work, well, that's fine. But about 15 years ago, I got into running. And I remember when I started running, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And I was running in ways that would make me feel very miserable, and I was like, no, I'm going to get it. I'm going to figure this out. This is going to become my new thing, my new hobby, uh, stress relief. I, I'm, going, I'm going to run three to four days a week, and it's going to be good for me. And yet I would run in the evenings after I had eaten breakfast, lunch, and dinner at McDonald's. And I would feel miserable. And I was like, this is not the way it looks in, in the pictures and in the articles where people are teaching you how to run. I look miserable and I feel miserable doing this. And I would run in really cheap shoes because I didn't understand you have to have running shoes to run. And so I would just go in the store and if it had Nike on it, Nike's the greatest shoe and I would buy Nikes and then I would, I would be struck with these horrible shin splints and uh, I, I, after I would get through running, I would have to go lay down and put ice around my legs. And, and some of you are saying, why didn't you just give up? Why didn't you find a new hobby? But I was going to press forward. I was going to figure out how to do this. And eventually I had to begin to ask others, how do you do this? And they began to say, well, you need to change your routine. You need to run. You need to eat better. You need to do all these things. You need to find some better shoes to run in. But it was the pain that made me realize I needed help. It, it was the pain and what the running was causing that I realized I needed to change things or I wasn't going to keep running. I was going to be, continue to be so miserable, I was going to give up on this. Well, the New Testament uses the imagery of a race when it talks about the Christian life over and over. And we see that in the book of James. This is the theme of the book of James, the Christian life and what it looks like to run this race. And last week we began to talk about this theme that James is just going to expand over and over in the book. It revolves around three terms, faith, endurance, and completion. And James says, this, was the, this is what the Christian life is all about, faith, endurance, and completion. And as we move through the book, he's going to expand on these concepts and what it means to have faith, endurance, and completion, as we described last week, is to become like Christ. And last week he said, as you run this race, you can count it all joy. And we talked about what that means when we face different trials, when we struggle, what it means to have joy. Joy is this counterweight emotion. 
when we are sad and angry and frustrated, when we are suffering and we are weighed down with those emotions, because of the gospel, we can rejoice and counter those emotions with joy because we see the bigger picture. We see the bigger race, if you will. And James says, in those trials, as you trust in God's goodness, you grow in steadfastness. And as you grow in steadfastness, you become more like Christ, not lacking anything. Christ, who for the joy set before him, didn't just endure suffering, he chose to suffer for the sake of others. And this process that we endure through suffering as we grow more like Christ, becomes a pursuit. We choose to suffer for others. But James says in running this race, pain is to be expected. Life is hard, and being a Christian makes it harder. And he is writing to a group of believers who are having to come to terms with this. They have believed the gospel, and they have been chased out of town. They are dispersed. They are scattered all over the known world because they are Christians. Family members have cast them out. They have had to choose to, to, to pick up and move, leaving homes and careers behind. And James, the, the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem, he writes this letter to, to teach them what it means to suffer. One of the first things he teaches them is the pain of suffering prompts something in us. When we feel the pain in this Christian life, it prompts our need for help, and we must ask for help if we're going to keep running. Notice we see that in verse 5. Suffering reveals our need for wisdom. Notice verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now, this wisdom in the midst of suffering you, you, you've heard the things we've even described here, and you're thinking, how in the world can I have joy in suffering? How in the world am I supposed to trust in God's goodness when I suffer? How in the world will I endure through this suffering? How will I make it to completion as I suffer? And what James says, if you don't understand this in your suffering, ask God. If you lack this wisdom... Now, first of all, we must define what wisdom is. It's not some new, out-of-nowhere word from God as you suffer. It's not some new revelation. And you, you want to know, why am I suffering? And God explains all the specifics and the ins and outs, and you get it. That's not what he's talking about here. What James is talking about is how to apply the word, how to apply the gospel. And we're going to look at that in two weeks, the, the implanted word how to apply God's word as you suffer. And that's why he uses the term here, wisdom. Because wisdom isn't just knowledge. It's not just revelation. It is knowledge of God and God's revelation of himself lived out. We see that in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 1-7 tells us that the fear 
of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God's revelation of himself that he is our creator invokes fear in our heart and trembling. We realize we are creatures and we must listen to our creator, listening to him, seeing his revelation and doing what he says, hearing and doing. And James is going to talk about that throughout the book. And so when we lack wisdom, we are to ask God ready to hear and do what he says. But the key here is amidst suffering. Suffering shakes us up. And and we want to, why in the world is this going on? How do I deal with this? How do I move forward? And James says, ask God, but be ready for what you are going to receive. It is wisdom. This is what God gives out when we suffer. Notice what he says here. He he is generous to all without reproach. He is kind. He lavishes this wisdom upon us. He goes overboard with it. And it's without reproach or reproof. Meaning when you're suffering and you ask God why, how, what do I do next? He's not going to punish you for asking him. No, he's going to generously give you wisdom. He's going to pour it out. Now, what is this wisdom specifically? Well, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the culmination of all wisdom. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is complete. Jesus is God's revelation in flesh. He is the word of God lived out. And as we talked about last week, God's goal in suffering is to make us like Jesus. And so what is it that we're asking God for when we ask him for wisdom when we suffer? It's this. God, how are you making me like Jesus as I suffer? That is our primary prayer request when we suffer. That is to move to the top of the list It doesn't mean we don't ask for deliverance. It doesn't mean we don't ask that God would provide in certain ways. But what moves to the top of the list, because it is God's top priority for us, is that we would know the joy of being like Christ is, God, would you give me wisdom? God, would you make me like Jesus as I suffer? You see, we so often think God is stingy because he doesn't give us what we want. Here, James says, no, no, he's generous when you ask for what he wants for you. We often think God is angry. He is punishing us as we suffer. He's not angry with us. He's ready to love us, not punish us when we ask for what he wants for us. And it is wisdom. How would that change your prayer request today? How would that change your prayer life today? Whatever that trial is, However you are suffering today and you have been begging and screaming to God, which we talked about last week, is right and real. God, I don't like this. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. God, take this from me. What if in that moment, Christ's likeness moved to the top of the list? God, I don't understand how all this is going to work, but amidst it all, make me like Jesus. 
Help me to love like Jesus loves. Help me to serve my enemies the way Jesus served his enemies. Help me to trust you the way Jesus trusted you. The act of prayer itself is to be Christ-like because in Christ you are a son speaking to your father. And that is what suffering does for us. It pushes us to God to ask for wisdom to be like Christ. But notice we ask for this wisdom next as the text continues. We ask for this wisdom believing God is good. Now remember last week we talked about faith. This goes back up to that cycle. Faith, endurance, completion. And here he gets back to faith. He says, you ask for this wisdom from God that he would make you complete in Christ, like Christ. But verse 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting. Now, we defined what faith is. Last week, it is that confidence that God is good and that he's going to do what is right. At the end of the day, that's what faith is. We trust him. You're good and you're going to do what's right. Why do we trust him? Because of the gospel. It always comes back to the gospel. He's good because he sent his son to die for your sins. You don't have to spend eternity in hell. He's good. He raised his son from the dead. And he promises when you believe in him, you will be raised from the dead. He's good. He's going to give you Jesus' eternal kingdom to rule and reign with him. God is good. He's done all of that. He said all of that. I have to trust that you are good. He's also good because his intention for you is to make you like Christ, which is what we're asking for. And so when you ask for wisdom, you're not doubting God is good. You may not see it. You may not understand it. You may not even feel it in the moment, but you believe it and you trust in it because you trust in the gospel. And he says, you're not doubting. You're not wondering because the word of God tells you these things about God. He's good. You're not guessing. You're not questioning God's goodness with no doubting. There's no reason to doubt because of the gospel. And he says here, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. The, the one who comes to God and says, I wonder if you're good. I know all of this talk about the gospel, but, but I'm still questioning. Could you prove to me that you're good? When God has already proven he's good in the gospel, you're like a wave. I want to believe. I don't know if I should believe. And, and you're, you're tossed to and fro by your experience. Your experience is what is guiding you like a wave. You're restless, controlled. There's no peace. There's only chaos. And notice what he says here. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from God. Now, I want to be clear He's not, this isn't name it and claim it. You're asking for wisdom. You're not asking for stuff. And you ask for wisdom believing God is good. And you're not shaken there because of the gospel. And you stand before him, you know if you ask God, listen, if you say, make me like Jesus, he's going to do it. Maybe not the way you want him to. But he will answer that prayer request. And you can stand before him, not like a wave tossed to and fro. But he says that person must not suppose he will receive anything from God. What does this mean? He's not going to learn anything if he doesn't trust God is good. We know how this is as parents and leaders and coaches. Those that we're trying to instruct and train. 
If they don't trust us that we know what we're saying, if, if they don't believe we are in it for their best interests, they're not going to learn. They're not going to grow in whatever we are teaching them. And it's the same thing before God. If you don't trust he's good and has your best interest in mind, you're not going to learn to be like Christ when you suffer. But he gets even more vivid in the explanation here. He says he is double-minded, and this word is severe, and it's a rebuke, and it, it, it comes up over and over again in James as hypocrisy, and it means you live in two different worlds. You are literally two-souled, meaning you want to live in God's goodness and say he's good, but the way that you live, you don't believe he's good. And how does that work out? Well, it's instability in all of his ways. The opposite, remember going back to steadfastness. This person is always shifting and moving like sand, blown in all kinds of directions. They're not steadfast. They're not enduring. They're always freaking out. And the reason is they're double-minded. And that's what suffering reveals in our life so often. Suffering exposes double-minded faith. Faith that wants to live as though God is good, but my wants and my desires in the immediate are also good. And to know if we have double-minded faith, here's a good question. When you are tested, when your faith is tested, do you turn around and test God? Do you turn around and test God by saying this? I know God is good, but God, I'm only going to believe you're good if you do what I want. James says that's double-minded hypocrisy because the one who believes God is good believes God is good no matter what, is rooted in God's goodness no matter what. And you can't be rooted in God's goodness and then defining your wants in the moment as good and then testing God. You are only good if you do what I want. You're only good if the healing comes. You're only good if the conflict disappears. You're only good if our worst fears never come to fruition. That's testing God and that's double-minded. You don't really believe what you say. And later on, James is going to say that is a dead faith. And the person who has that kind of faith is always shifting. Their experience is so volatile before God. Because their experience of God's goodness is based on their feelings. And life every day changes. (laughs) The prognosis for the sickness or the future, the economy, whatever it is, changes every day. And if you're defining God's goodness by what you want, you're going to be shifting day in and day out. Your life is going to be volatile. If you have a double-minded faith, your feelings and people change. And to you, God's goodness is going to be changing. And there's no stability in that. So how do we ask for wisdom? Not double-minded, No, we ask for wisdom anchored in God's goodness. 
Christ-like wisdom is anchored by the truth of God's goodness, not the waves of your experience. Christ-like wisdom is anchored by the truth of God's goodness, defined in the gospel that he is good no matter what, not the waves of your experience from day in and day out. You see, we don't just tritely say, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. And that have no meaning. You can say that, you should say that. But there is a weight to it. And it's the weight of the gospel. And for the believer here today, you can say that. In security and stability, knowing he sent his son to die for my sins. I am forgiven. God is good. He raised his son from the dead. He's going to raise me from the dead. God is good. And you ask for God's wisdom based on his goodness in the gospel. The cross and resurrection have been stapled in the ground. In the history of human history, they do not change. The gospel does not change no matter what you are feeling. No matter the news from day in and day out. And so we... God, you're good. I know you're good. Give me wisdom. And so what is that going to look like? It's going to look like Jesus in the garden. And the weight of the cross is before him. He is going to endure. We come back to this prayer a lot. He's going to endure the wrath of God for our sin. And the terror of God's wrath is in his face. And he knows it well. And what does he do? He asks for wisdom. But he asked for wisdom knowing the Father is good. You are good. That's why I'm praying to you. It's because you're good and you love me. Let this cup pass from me. And yet, he turns around and says, but not my will, but your will be done. Meaning, if you take the cross away, you're good. But if I keep marching toward the cross, you're still good. And that is what Christian wisdom is. It is Christ-like to say, take this cup from me. The pain in your gut, take this cancer from me. Anxiety and worry Fix my marriage. Fear that that loved one is going to spend eternity in hell. God, save them. Please save them. Take this from me. And I'm praying to you, Father, because I know you're good. But wisdom also walks away knowing sometimes God says, wait. And even in the waiting, he is good. For Jesus, wisdom meant crucifixion. For you, it may be keep loving your enemy who every day is assaulting your faith, trying to humiliate you because you're a Christian. It may be. Love your enemy. I'm not going to take that from you. You're going to learn Christ-likeness by loving your enemy. You're going to serve others. 
You're not going to withdraw. You're going to serve others and suffer. That may be wisdom for you. You may have to endure this to testify to my goodness and help others who are walking behind you to understand I am good, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. And so you ask for wisdom, believing, rooted, anchored in the truth of God's goodness. And when you're anchored in the truth of God's goodness, you can walk away and live the word, do the word, no matter what it means for you. And notice the text continues. We ask for wisdom, believing God is good. We also ask for wisdom, understanding life is a vapor. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humility. Here he begins to describe what, what the Bible talks about is the pride of life. The pride of life means to boast or, or give eternal hope to temporary things. Meaning we, we boast in the immediate we boast into the stuff we have right now. We hope in, in what is before us right now. The beauty of our life right now. We take pride in it as if it's going to last forever. We put eternal hope in temporary things. And James says, the lowly, you already understand. And the word lowly is poor, financially poor. You don't have the resources. You already understand that life is more than the pride of life. And you are understanding that all you need is to be exalted in Christ. And so you keep boasting in your exaltation in Christ. Now, the rich, and James probably wrote to Christians who were very wealthy who had lost everything. And what he says to them here is, you're being humiliated, but there's hope in that because God is teaching you you don't need all of that. And you can boast in something greater. Your exaltation in Christ, which is actually your humiliation. Whether you have a little or have a lot, what matters is that you are in Christ and will be exalted with him. And so the rich and poor are learning that. And then he, be, he just gives an illustration of what this looks like. He says, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also would the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What James is trying to communicate here is, is, is the world is like a flower. And we all know flowers don't last forever. They come up and they're beautiful. They smell glorious. They look amazing, and yet they're only here for a time. They fade, the petals fall off, and they're gone. And he says, this is what the pride of life is like. All of the temporary things that we hope in, they come and they go. Even some of the most beautiful things that we have, they come and they go. But notice he says, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. One of the things James is saying here is because sin and death has entered the world, sin has entered the world, and death through sin, everything's decaying, everything's passing away. But one of the things suffering does is it comes and it speeds up the process. Suffering is you being separated 
from, from goodness and life in this world. That's when you suffer, when you're separated from those things. And, and, and in Palestine during this time, during the spring, it wasn't just the sun that would blaze in the day that would destroy flowers. It, it was the sun's heat that blew night and day. And all of the beautiful flowers were eventually scorched. And he says, that's what suffering that has come upon you. And you're thinking, what in the world? Why am I suffering? It's just like the sun that is coming into your life and it is scorching the pride of life from your life. And if you cling on to the things that sometimes suffering takes away from you, if you cling on to those things and you hope in those things as they're being pulled away from you, you will be pulled away. You will fall away. And you will fade in your pursuits. Meaning, if your identity is in money, when money is taken away, your soul will be taken away. If, if your identity is in fame and awards that, that are given to you and the stuff you have, when it is taken away, you will be taken away. And it's a warning. And James is going to continue to warn us of this hypocrisy. But suffering exposes this kind of temporary faith. And so a good question for you today is when things of this world fade in your life, does your hope fade? Does your eternal hope fade? When the temporary possession, the temporary relationship, the moment is removed, are you devastated eternally? Like how in the world... Your, your identity is wrapped up into those things. How in the world will we move forward? The world must be coming to an end. That's what he's saying if your identity is in the pride of life. Or are you learning the wisdom that if I put my hope in the now to the degree that I put my hope in the now is the degree I will be disappointed. Over time, we just learned that that's silly. That, that the things I have now aren't going to last. They're going to fade away like vapor. And we learn that wisdom. And it is the wisdom that Jesus had when he was tested by Satan. Remember, Jesus is in the wilderness. And Satan tempts him with bread and power and tempts him. Do you really believe God is good? Tempts his faith. And what does Jesus say? Man doesn't live on bread alone. I don't need power now. God is good. There's an eternal kingdom that is coming. What did Jesus realize 40 days in the wilderness? That this moment is a vapor. And I can trust God for eternity. I wonder if that's the kind of faith that you have. Because the, the longer you live, you realize this is a reality. That this world is fading away. And one of the things the gospel should do for the believer is as this world is fading away, instead of us losing hope, instead of us becoming more and more disappointed with the sufferings of this life, is we just gain momentum into eternity. Because we realize we are being freed from a fading world. This doesn't last forever. And suffering separates us from those things in this world. And so we realize that's great. I'm getting closer to eternity. When the relationship comes and goes, we are forced to realize that 
eternal communion with the triune God is closer and it's all I need. Get me there quicker. What we realize as time runs out, day in and day out, and the older we get, we wake up in the morning and we say, wow, the last 24 hours went by really fast. And then there's another week, we say, wow, Sunday to Sunday, really fast. And then month, and then it's just like we were standing around at Christmas going, I felt like we were just here a week ago. And things begin to speed up in our life and time begins to move. For the Christian we can stand back. We, we realize we're not going to stop it. For the Christian, we don't have to get frustrated with that. No, we stand back and say, I'm one day closer. That changes the way you think about this fading world that's a vapor. It is a vapor. And James says, don't try to grab it. It's disappearing. When the body breaks down, you realize only a resurrection is going to fix it. I used to get really angry with my grandparents. And they were getting 75, 80. Only have one grandmother that's still alive. And, and as they got older, and they were all believers, rock solid believers. And you'd go visit them. And they, they would look at you and say, I'm just ready to go. And when you're selfish, you go, I don't want you to go. Oh, you don't know what it's like to live in this body. You, I Listen. I've experienced all the good I need to experience here. And, and, and I, the way life is right now, I'm not going to get much more out of it. I'm ready to go. And that's what suffering does for us. It unlatches those things that are holding you down to this world. And it opens your eyes to, it's a vapor. It's fading. But faith in the goodness of God gains momentum as the world fades. Notice verse 12. We ask for wisdom believing God is good. We ask for wisdom believing the world is fading. And we ask for wisdom that endures to the end. Notice he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Now this word blessed, it means happy. It means bliss. And so what James is, again, this cycle, faith, endurance, completion, you can count all that joy. He says, when you get to the end and you're at completion, you're standing before Christ, you're complete in Christ, you will have eternal joy. And so blessed is the man, happy is the man who remains steadfast, patiently endures in the goodness of God under trial, under specific trials, but also the whole trial of this life. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And this is, this is like an award for an athlete during this time. It was the wreath that they placed on their head after they won the meet, after they won the race on the podium. You will receive the crown of life. Now, he's specific here. Crown of life is eternal life. How do we know that? Which God has promised to those who love him, who are committed to him, who love him because he first loved us. And you are given the award of eternal life, which is to know and love the Son and Father by the Spirit forever. And what he says here is, this is the kind of wisdom God grants that when all of the sand has shifted under your feet, you're still anchored. When all of the flowers around you fade, 
you're still anchored in God's goodness and eternal kingdom. You're standing in the wisdom of God's goodness. And he paints a picture. It's like a runner who presses through the agony to finish the race. And he looks back on all of the suffering and says, not just it was worth it, it made the race better. Pushing through those things made the race better. The last thing James is showing us here is suffering exposes a dead faith. What he is saying is, as you go through suffering and those things arise in your heart, God is, God is warning you of something. God is testing, remember last week, testing your faith. And God is not testing your faith for him. He knows your faith. In Ephesians, he is the one who gave you faith. He knows it. He is testing and proving your faith for you. And so as you go through suffering, the question is, are you going to make it? Are you going to persevere? Are you going to endure? God is warning you through suffering. Do you have a dead faith? And so you have to ask the question, when I suffer, do I doubt? God's goodness. When I suffer, do I cling with eternal hope to the temporary? When I suffer, do I give up? Because the unbeliever does this. He doubts forever. He clings to this world forever. And he turns and he walks away from Jesus forever. And there is a warning here. Is that you? Are you ready to stop running? You're enduring suffering right now? What is it telling you about yourself? In the same way that as you run and your body tells you something through the pain, something is going on there. Suffering tells you something about your faith. And you are to learn from it and you are to ask for wisdom. Make me like Christ in this moment. But if you are someone here today, like myself, who doubts and tries to cling to this world, and it sometimes wants to give up, what do you do? Notice, going back, faith produces endurance. He doesn't say if you're here today and you're doubting, try harder. Try harder. Pray harder. Read your Bible more. Come to church more. He doesn't say today, if you're clinging to the things of this world, run faster. He doesn't say, if you're ready to give up, no, just believe. It's all going to turn out. No, he says, faith produces endurance, and it is faith that produces endurance. In Romans 14, verse 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so if you're in this moment and you begin to doubt, and you're clinging to this world, and you're ready to give up, it would be sinful for you today to walk from these doors and think, I gotta gotta be better. I gotta be better. I can't give up and looking for something within you to keep you moving forward. That's not what James is teaching here. The race is too long and it is too hard for you to look to yourself. It's grit. No, no, it's grace. It's grace that gets you to the end. 
Genuine faith is what produces endurance, but faith in what? Genuine faith that endures to the end is always faith in Christ. And I want to press this home as we conclude. James isn't saying work hard, run harder. He's saying keep doing what you did when you decided to follow Jesus and you believed in his goodness. Trust him. Trust him. You trust him to save you from your sins. Trust him when life is hard. In Hebrews eleven six, it says, without faith, is it impossible to please God? For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The writer of Hebrews says the same things James says. He says, when you lack wisdom, you draw to the Father. Suffering pulls you into God. How? By looking to Christ, who the writer of Hebrews says is the author and finisher of our faith. We look to the one who's already run the race for us. So when we suffer, our only hope is in Christ. And we look to Christ and we have faith in Christ. And so you're asking, maybe today you're here suffering. You say, how do I process the worst case scenario in my life that's coming true right now? How do I process that? Well, you ask God for wisdom. And wisdom is this. Jesus has already endured your worst case scenario. Hell on the cross for you. How will I make it without my spouse? Wisdom is this. When you believe the gospel, because Jesus was raised from the dead, God has given you the spirit of God. Spirit of Christ and promises to never leave you or forsake you. You look to Christ. You look to Christ. How will I die well? Ask the Father. And wisdom is this. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Look to Christ. Draw near to the Father by looking to Christ. You see, it's one thing to change your shoes, your diet, your routine, when pain comes and you're running. But when a, when a runner is injured, when a runner is sick, and they keep pressing forward, all they do is create more damage. Now what that runner needs is rest. And the truth of the gospel is this, and suffering reminds us of this. It's not ju- you're not just feeling a tinge of pain You're being reminded that this world is cursed with sin and death. And you're not just injured by it. It makes you incapable of running. And you need one who has ran for you. You need Christ who has run the race for you. And only resting in him will we not just run, but will we finish the race. Ask God for wisdom and receive Christ.